Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Anthropology. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Knight, reader in the Department of Social Anthropology and director of the Center for Cosmopolitan Studies at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland. We'll be talking about his book, Vertiginous Life, An Anthropology of Time and the Unforeseen, published by Berkham Press in 2021. Thank you very much, Dr. Knight, for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. Um, So at the New Books Network, we like to start our episodes by getting to know our authors a little bit. Can you tell us about yourself as an anthropologist and how did you come to anthropology? Yeah, sure. Um, So I started actually as an archaeologist. I went to university to study Latin American archaeology. I wanted to be... um, an anthropologist of the Chinchorro, an archaeologist of the Chinchorro people of the northern Atacama Desert. And I dug with Time Team, which is a, a television program we have here in the UK. And I've done some um, background research on archaeology. And I went off to a very small university in Wales um, to study archaeology. And when I got there, um, I found myself in a hall of, of Greeks. Um, the lecturer, yeah, the, the lecturer had been on a recruitment drive to Thessaloniki, I think, and she was Greek herself, and she had brought back all these Greeks. So I, I found myself in a hall of residence which had uh, thirty-nine Greeks and myself, um, at eighteen years old, <laughs> wow. just away from home. Um, so I remember my mother saying, saying to me on that first night, uh, you know, darling, I'll, I'll call the vice chancellor. I'll, I'll get you moved away from these Greeks. And I said, Mum, I actually really like this. I want to learn about their culture. I want to be with Greeks. I'd rather be with Greeks than I would with English people. Um, so, <laughs> so I stayed. I was plunged into this very sort of deep um, sort of experience of Greek culture from the very first day at university. And I've been on holiday to Greece a lot. And I've done the whole package tourism thing since the 1980s, uh, since about 1987, I believe, my first time in Greece. Um, but again, I, I wasn't thinking about Greece and I wasn't thinking about anthropology uh, as my potential career path or even degree. But um, I took in that first semester at the University of Wales, Lampeter, a tiny little place up in the Welsh hills, uh, a, a course called Past and Present. And Past and Present was combining archaeology and anthropology together. And I thought, well, I'll never become an anthropologist because, you know, I can't speak another language. I, I'm awful. I did German for five years. I did French for five years. And I don't speak a word of either of them. I'm just terrible at languages. Um, but on that day, the first day at university, I, I met um, my who was to become my life partner, Stavrula Pipiru, um, who, was an, who is an anthropologist at St. Andrews. Um, she'd gone to study her master's and had the room opposite me in the corridors. And uh, our Greek lecturer, Elizabeth Kutsoglu, who was one of only two anthropologists at the university and who was running that past and present course. 
Um, and between them, these two very strong, powerful Greek figures, female figures, um, converted me from being an archaeologist to an anthropologist over the course of two years and convinced me not to do anthropological research in South America, but to become an anthropologist of the Mediterranean and primarily of Greece. Um, but certainly growing up in working class uh, council estates in southern England, I never had heard of anthropology. I didn't know what it meant. It never crossed anybody's lips in conversation with me until I went to university at 18 years old. So I had no idea what it was. Um, I knew I loved culture. I knew I loved travel. I used to read maps. I was really into human geography and, and archaeology. But it wasn't until that first semester at university and I thought, well, this this is it. This is this is what I wanted to do. This is what I've been spending all my all my sort of adolescence uh, trying to figure out what what the name of this discipline was that I wanted to do and to and and to do with my life. So I sort of fell into anthropology through many different ways, but um, I've certainly found found like I've got a good home here. Mm, that's fascinating. I wasn't expecting. <laughs> this answer about archaeology in Latin America. So that's really fascinating. And, you know, we're very thankful for Dr. Kurt Solo and Papyro for um, putting you in the path to anthropology that ended up in this wonderful book. Um, so, you know, I also want to talk a little bit about your path into this book specifically. Can you tell us how you conceived of this book project? Yeah, sure. So, um I started my research, my PhD research in Greece before the economic crisis struck. Um, in October 2009 is when Yorgos Papandreou said, uh, discovered, in inverted commas, discovered that Greece had no money. Although he actually came out and said the other, the opposite and said, you know, don't worry, we do have money. Um, but everybody knew that there wasn't in October 2009. So it was about a year after the global economic crisis, the banking collapse. Um, but I started doing my, my PhD field research in 2006-07, and I came to write on um, uh, basically a, a retake um, of John Campbell's work on patronage and clientelism. And I was looking at how small and medium enterprises in the town of Tricola in central Greece, how that was playing out, how the small and medium enterprises were playing out along two different sort of economic lines. First of all, by being in a neoliberal capitalist economy and in the European Union, the Eurozone, etc., but also still having this sort of classic patronage clientelism network um, behind it. So I wanted to see how this worked together to sort of refresh uh, John Campbell's idea of patronage and clientelism in Greece. Um, so I did a lot of my field research before the economic crisis struck, and I went back to Durham University where I was doing my PhD in the UK. And within the year that I was started my writing up, there was this economic crisis that hit Greece. And it really was like an overnight rupture, a before and after kind of event. So whereas people were talking before about, you know, planning for weddings and travel, and there was quite a consumerist culture, um, there was a lot of prosperity. And all my research was about prosperity in the European Union and all these sort of small and medium enterprises that were flourishing. Uh, from that moment on, October 2009, it started to be different narratives in the field. So I was coming back after my original research and people were talking about returning to times of famine, like in the 1940s, um, the reoccupation of Greece by the equivalent of Ottoman landlords who were taking their land, the reemergence of German occupation in Greece. Um, then they were talking about di dictatorship and about the stock market crash of the 1990s and all these different moments of the past, which really weren't present in my original ethnographic research. So I thought, I've got two things here. I can do one of two things. I can either write a historical document and say this is how Greece was when I visited it, or I can more or less throw my whole PhD research out the window and start again and write about how this economic crisis is playing out on an everyday level, the consequences of a global banking collapse on a rural community in central Greece. Uh, and that's what I decided to do. I decided to come back and do more research and uh, my eventual PhD was on the, um, it came out in the book History, Time and Economic Crisis in Central Greece in 2015, which was um, a revised version of the PhD thesis on how the economic crisis um, has impacted Greece as a moment of rupture, as the moment of something unexpected uh, in the true meaning of krisi, the, the moment of decision, the, the judgment moment, something which is only supposed to be momentary and not permanent. So that was the how the research started. 
Um, but then that was 2012, 2011-12. And the book which uh, we're talking about today, Vertiginous Life, um, really looks at how the crisis had turned from a moment of rupture where people thought that they could have short-term coping strategies, that we would be able to get over this, we would be able to overcome this like we have done all these crises of the past, and how it has become a chronic condition, a context for life uh, a decade on. So we're over uh, uh, over 10 years since the outbreak of economic crisis in Greece, and the idea of this book was to see how I could capture the stories, certain life stories of people who had uh, their worlds transformed in many different ways over the last 10 years, but all seem to be referencing in different ways this something, this dizziness, uh, nausea, uh, loss of feelings of the self, of loss of former self, of disorientation about where their lives have gone. So from having like birthright futures that people were born into in, from the 1980s onwards in Greece, where you actually expected quite a lineal trajectory in life, you expected certain things to happen as belonging to a, a Western, modern, European sort of context, um, people felt that they were being ripped from this linear timeline and thrown back into the past, thrown, thrown into different timelines and trajectories. And this was very, very disorienting. Uh, but at the start, people sort of felt that they could get over this and that they, it would be overcome and the normal timeline would be restored. But as that decade went on, it became very clear that this was a long-term condition and the disorientation uh, would be there to stay for the long term. So the Vertiginous Lives book looks at the different ways that people have navigated or negotiated a decade of crisis, a decade of disorientation, a decade of disillusion with the future, of loss of former self, and the ways that that presents itself in their everyday lives. Yes, so, you know, as you just wonderfully encapsulated for us, the book focuses on vertigo as something that structures and produces lives in Greece. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. So what does vertigo mean to your collaborators and what is at stake in focusing on vertigo? Yeah. Um, so I first came to the term of temporal vertigo, and I say this in the preface to the book. Um, it was Charles Stewart, uh, the anthropologist of mm-hmm. Greece, uh, who's based at UCL, uh, who's a very good friend of mine. He wrote um, the one of the blurbs on the back of the first uh, History, Time and Economic Crisis book, and he mentions the term temporal vertigo. And he said to me that really all of this that you're describing with the onset of crisis, how people are um, jumping between different parts of the past to make sense of what's going on now, how they feel they're being swept back in time or being set on different trajectories, this really sounds like a form of temporal vertigo. Um, so when I came to think through the term. I wrote a couple of papers about it. I talked more to Charles about it and to other people. And I really started to believe that this term of temporal vertigo or vertigo in particular captured so much of what was going on in Greece with the people who I were working with. So at times it was easy to identify through narratives. Um, People would talk about feeling dizzy, dizziness of not knowing where they belong, of sickness, of remembering what it was like before the crisis and the nausea and sickness felt that things were no longer like it or as people's livelihoods were being stripped away as there were so many dead-end futures. Um, also, it's almost dissociation with former lives and, and uh, an ability to attach themselves in the here and now to what had gone before and indeed what was going to come. So this sort of idea of swirling, of a spin cycle with no end, elongated pre- presence where there was no threshold towards the future, going around in circles, that really manifested itself at the first level through narrative words that you could connect, like nausea, like dizziness, etc. But there was also another level, um, which was beyond the sort of phenomenological or or beyond the level of affect uh, to the individual. And it seemed to be more of a structure or what I call in the book an atmosphere or aesthetic something. Vertigo was or is um, what makes the world make sense. It is that something which everybody seems to be experiencing as an atmosphere in Greece as a collective, um, as well as on this individual level of, of affect. So the book does tend to try to scale vertigo, first of all, through three different pins or three different poles, which are existential, 
uh, material um, and temporal. Or those over overlap and interweave as well, but they are the three sort of uh, pins of vertigo that I, I get there. But also a scaling between the individual experience of vertigo and the individual life stories that uh, express these types of affects, and more of a structure of a time of crisis and how we can think about this uh, collectively as well. Yeah, actually, uh, my next question is about uh, times of crisis. So, I mean, I'm sure you can tell us <laughs> more about that. But, you know, in your book, what I found so powerful is that vertigo is not just this individual condition, but you arrive at a broader understanding of uh, affective structures that are shaped by new liberal austerity politics. Um so can you tell us more about times of crisis within this broader scheme and what does times of crisis tell us about broader political frameworks? It's a very good question. Um, so I'll have to go back a little bit to say where we came up with this <laughs> idea of times of crisis or time spaces. So uh, I wrote a book with Rebecca Bryant called The Anthropology of the Future, um, 2019. It was a, a Cambridge University Press book. Um, and in that, we started to try to think of how certain time spaces had what we call teleoaffective structures. So in any certain time space, people were structured, any certain time space was structured in a certain way where people had orientations to the future. So these time spaces would overlap. Um, you could have a, a time of Brexit, let's say, a time of Trump. Um, in my case, a time of crisis. You could have a time of peace in the Middle East. Um, all these time spaces overlapped and intermingled, but they had very specific orientations attached to them. So when we talk about orientations to the future, Rebecca and I mentioned uh, potentiality, uh, anticipation, expectation, hope, and how at certain times, in certain time spaces, uh, these orientations manifested themselves very strongly. Um, so we wrote a little bit there about times of crisis, and I was left a little bit um, disillusioned, or I felt that I hadn't taken it far enough with the idea of what sort of affective structures does a time of crisis have? How are people oriented in towards the future in particular in a time of crisis. So the Vertiginous Lives book kind of took that idea of certain time spaces, having structures, having trajectories, having orientations attached to them, and really tried to delve in detail into what a time of crisis looked like. Um, and I got that to one of my, my friends and mentors at St. Andrews, Nigel Rapport, when he heard uh, was talking about the anthropology of the future book and talking about these time spaces. He said, yeah, but, you know, tell me how the individual experiences that. Tell me how on a, a sort of small scale household level, on the level of, of a village or a town or of a, even in terms of sort of interiority, um, what can we do to populate this time space of crisis? Uh, and the Vertiginous Lives uh, book tries to do that. It takes a time of crisis and says, how do people think about the future? How do they think of these different teleologies, these different trajectories, when um, living through quite a structural uh, sort of epoch, if you like, uh, of crisis? And I was able to, to do that because crisis as rupture became crisis as a chronic condition, and crisis became an epoch in itself over the last 10 years. Um, what that can tell you about the political condition, um, well, I think there's a lot of the time of crisis, which is also based on accountability and blame, and that in itself has certain trajectories attached to it. Um, so you can see perhaps things that might seem like pathologization um, going on when I talk about captivity and how people feel captive in a time of crisis. But that captivity uh, is put there, according to the people that I work with, by certain political forces. So you have the Troika, the um, International Monetary Fund, the, the European Central Bank and the European Commission, who were administering the austerity measures in Greece. And they seem to be acting like the captors. They're the people who, according to a lot of my informants, have foreclosed futures, who hold them entrapment in this elongated present that's lasted for a decade. Um, so you can, you can understand a little bit about the power games which are going on in structuring these uh, epochs or these time spaces, and 
also how that then influences how people think about the future, about how they can make their own trajectories in the world and these sort of orientations that they have. For me, if thinking about thinking about vertigo in particular and how that forms part of the affective structure of a time of crisis, it really is looking at this um, idea of standing on the edge that comes up a lot in philosophy mm. as well. And this vertiginous balance when somebody is on the edge. So if you think of yourself standing on a cliff edge, you can be scrambling to hold onto that cliff edge by your fingernails, to scramble onto the familiar ground, the past, everything which makes the world comfortable and trying to stay there. Or you can take the plunge off of the cliff edge and into the whirlpool or the abyss below. The vertigo is pulling you in both directions. The vertigo is pulling you to stay put in the comfort um, of the known. And it's also pulling you towards making that leap, audacious leap into the unknown. and I feel like the time of crisis epoch in Greece is very, very much like that for a lot of people. Do you try to scramble to hold on to the past and what was? Or do you take the plunge into the unknown? Now, if you do take that plunge off of the cliff edge into the abyss, what's to say that what, a, what is awaiting for you isn't another form or a worse form of entrapment or vertigo? Um, and people who, who have commented on me that, yes, we have decided that, you know, we can't return to the past, we do have to form new futures, often describe another form of entrapment within this whirlpool after, after kind of accepting the fact that we're in a state of chronic crisis. So um, you do have these two polemics playing along in the book of those people like like um, like Mary that is in the, one of the first chapters who really want to hold on to the past self, who really want to return to uh, future's past, but cannot let go of that cliff edge. And you have other people who take the plunge and embrace new futures, whether it be through technology, whether it be through movement and mobility. But once they get to that new place, they find very often that there's a new form of captivity, there's a new form of tra- entrapment and different affects and orientations attached to it. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think, you know, by doing this work, your book really shows us that the future is necessarily multiple. And I really appreciate that. Um, I'm also curious about your conceptualization of the else when. So especially through uh, technology, you show us that vertigo travels to the else when, uh, for example, in the chapter focusing on Antonis. So what is the relationship between technology and vertigo? And um, what was at stake for you in addressing this relationship? Sure. Um, Well, part of that is politics, I think. When I first started thinking and talking about the else when, it was because when I was talking about the economic crisis with people in central Greece, they would often say, where are we now in terms of um, mm. where are we geographically? Do we belong still to the the West? Do we belong to the sort of same uh, time space as Germany, as Britain, as the, as the US? Do we belong to modernity? Because we feel like we're being thrown back in time. And a lot of this has to do with technology, which I'll explain in a moment. But they were also asking, when are we now? Not only where are we now, but when are we now? We feel like we've been thrown back into another time. We feel like we're living a different trajectory than the rest of Europe. Um, And this form of temporal disorientation of when are we now on the timeline of pasts and futures was when I started to think about the else when. Now that might sound abstract and it might sound like it's sort of theoretical first, but it really wasn't. So I think that comes through in the book with stories like Andonis with the interaction with technology. So I remember in the early years of the economic crisis, 2011, 12, 13, uh, the house where I stay on the agricultural plains in central Greece, uh, I can go up to the top of the house, which is still in the bare brick, and I can look out over the plains of Thessaly. And they'd always been used for crops, for cereals. You'd have these fields, there's a breadbasket of Greece, fields as far as the eye could see. So I was there one summer and I went back to the UK and returned three or four months later for Christmas and New Year. And I went up to the top of the house, as I always do, looking over the views towards the mountains in the distance. And where there was once crops, 
there were photovoltaic panels, solar panels. So I thought, you know, like any good anthropologist, uh, you know, I've got to follow my informants on this. I've got to try to work out what's going on here. Why is this land use suddenly changed? And to cut a very long story short, uh, the European Union <laughs> had um, passed on to Greece this idea that you can export renewable energy to pay back debt, to decrease your deficit, or put agricult- on agricultural land, um, which isn't actually particularly uh, productive anymore because whole sailors have gone bust beyond subsistence agriculture there wasn't much going on in the markets uh, we can put photovoltaic panels on it wind turbines on the islands and export the energy to northern uh, europe now that has got masses of problems and an interdisciplinary project that i worked on at, at durham university um, and at the lse indeed uh, was looking at you know, is this viable? The engineers say it's not for, for certain infrastructure reasons. You know, politicians say it is. Uh, there's a whole geopolitical questions to it. Physicists are trying all different forms of different composites here, like a guinea pig test site in Greece. So there's a lot of interdisciplinary questions going on about that. But for the people themselves, the traditional agricultural land, which uh, had only been sort of turned into private property after 400 years of being um, sharecropped, being, being the worked by sharecroppers under the Ottoman Empire, um, that property had now been taken back into the hands of international um, firms and what people saw as foreign occupiers. Uh, but more so than that, when I went up to the top of the house, like I say, at the Christmas when I came back, as dusk fell, this deep, thick smog descended over the village and you couldn't see the fields because people were burning whatever they could get their hands on, uh, old uh, furniture which might be varnished and unsuitable firewood and such like to keep their homes warm. They were burning whatever they could. There was no gas central heating, the petrol central heating was too expensive and the PV power didn't feed the homes. It went off to the urban centres and it went off um, abroad. So it's an extractive economy just like any other extractive economy we might know of. So you had people who were being promised, and indeed the mechanics who were working on it, working on this high-tech, futuristic, European Union-endorsed, ultra-modern form of energy and materiality in the photovoltaic panels. But then they were going home at night and putting unsuitable firewood and old furniture on the fire and burning whatever they could get their hands on to, white, to, to, to warm the home. So that was, they were talking about archaic times, returning to peasant life, returning to village life, pre-dictatorship, pre-1960s uh, trajectories. So that people were being torn on these two different um, timelines, one towards this ultra-modern futurity through materiality of solar panels, but then at the home they were being, like I say, thrown back on a different trajectory to a different when. So that again built into the question of when do I exist? When am I located on the timelines of pasts and futures? I'm being promised one thing, I'm experiencing another, I'm sort of being torn apart uh, by these two competing trajectories. And that got me thinking and theorizing and talking more about the idea of the else when, uh, and that of course is vertigo inducing. It's extremely disorienting to be promised futures, but to be living pasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I'm also really intrigued by the methodology that led to these important contributions. As you mentioned, the book is structured around uh, particular collaborators and their own life narratives. And, you know, from the way I see it, intimacy is a central or it must intimacy must be a central part of your approach to um you know build the kind of trust to um you know share all these narratives uh so could you speak to us about what role intimacy had in both your field work and your writing process yeah sure um so i suppose there's a few lines to take that the 
the book starts with a very personal story. It starts with the mm-hmm. story of the death of my brother when I was 15 years old, and my brother mm-hmm. was 12, and a very sudden death of a, of a brain hemorrhage. So we walked to school in the mornings and were laughing and joking and were talking about football and girls and all of this type of stuff. And then I come home in the afternoon and there's a note on the front door that says, um, no, please go and see the neighbor. Don't worry. It's from my mother. And a few hours later, three hours, I was in the home, in the house by myself, waiting for news about what's happened to my brother. Uh, and eventually, after three hours, my parents come home, my grandparents come home, and I realized that he's died. And that, you know, that morning we walked to school together was the the last days of my previous life as such. But more so than that, the three hours that were were there in the home waiting for news uh, of my brother's condition was where I experienced what I say vertigo. Um, Things became uncanny. Now reflecting back on it, I question my memory. I question the events, why certain things were like that when illogically, illogically they were not. So there's a lot of questioning of self and questioning of memory. And the feeling of the duration of the three hours felt very different, Um, heightened senses, etc, etc. And I say, you know, I don't want that narrative to be indulgent. It's not there. So people say, you know, poor Daniel, you know, poor guy, because it's not everybody has these different things to cope with in their lives. But I hope by putting myself there, I show that we are all at the end of the day, anthropy, we're all, you know, anthropos and anthropology is core to this, we can learn about ourselves as much as we learn about uh, other people and the subjects we study. And I hope that that personal opening story is a way to open up to the reader to the audience to think about times when they might have felt vertigo, when did time feel like it was slowing down? When was it a different memento or a different rhythm? Um, when perhaps did they feel they were detached from themselves? People feel sort of um, pulled out of their bodies as if they were looking down in the corner of the room upon themselves, watching the world go by. This hyper-consciousness of presence, hyper-consciousness of one's own existence. Um, when do things become uncanny? There must be, for most people who, who read this book, I would expect, times where they felt this idea of perhaps what I call vertigo or certainly um, temporal disorientation. And that personal narrative is the way that the book is set up. Um, I take it chapter by chapter, looking at stories of five of the core informants uh, over the course of 10 years and how their life has changed and how they've coped with this crisis as rupture as it's become a chronic condition. Um, And I suppose... I've been able to do that because it's been now 2003 is when I first started my research in this area of of Greece, so it's nearly 20 years. Um, And these are personal relationships that I've built up over the course of those 20 years. Um, So I'm in the position now, which obviously I wasn't 10 years ago, to be able to to look back and sort of identify the key patterns from these five informants of how things have changed, how things have stayed the same, and how people have dealt with a decade of crisis. But in doing that and deciding that I wanted to set them up by five personal stories um, of my research participants, I then decided that I'd have to try to stay as true as possible to their experiences of the world. And that necessarily meant that I wouldn't have any sort of one singular theoretical direction. Um, So it's not a book that is structured only on one theoretician or on one strand of anthropology. And I say that in the introduction, I'm trying to look for these parallel stories, these parallel strands and feelings that make the world make sense for each one of these informants. So sometimes that's a phenomenological approach. Sometimes that's me talking about Sartre and Kierkegaard, and I never thought that I'd ever use Kierkegaard in a book. I mean, I'm, I'm not usually, I'm not that kind of guy. Um, <laughs> I, other times I go to materiality and I go towards more, more sort of the STS kind of direction. Um, I'm bringing in philosophers when I need philosophers, geographers when I need geographers and such like. Um, And I say that in the beginning, that don't expect to find one theoretical strand of anthropology here. I'm trying to explain how people's lives make sense to them and how they encounter this vertiginous something um, which seems to make their world go round. And and that's done in very different, uh, different ways with each one of these personal stories. But it is a personal book, and it's a personal book for myself, and it's a personal book for the people who I've worked with here. And I hope that I've managed to capture their lives uh, somehow. But it also gave me more of a, a sort of nervous anxiety when the book came out of how it was going to be received, because it's not 
just a theory and it's not just uh you know people who i've i've gone and and done a few interviews with these are lives that i've lived intimately for at least the last 10 a lot of them the last 20 years being represented to the world on on paper and of course that as an author gives you a little bit more anxiety once once the thing is actually there in print mm-hmm. yeah i think i mean i just want to acknowledge um your vulnerability right like both in the book and um sharing not just um what you've done in your field work but also a bit of yourself also with our listeners so i think one of the strengths of the book is showing that vulnerability is a part of um understanding these lives and you know translating life history so I just wanted to uh, point that out and thank you for yeah. doing that kind of work. Yeah, I agree. I think that's very, <laughs> very important. I, I tell my students always, in uh, particularly new students coming to master's courses and things, that you know it is anthropology and we are all anthropy. We're all in this. And I think as well as learning about others, and, and it sounds very cliche and it sounds perhaps a bit sickly, but as well as learning about others and about the world, we also learn a lot about ourselves in engaging with others and in engaging with theory indeed. Um, and that's something I started in the Anthropology of the Future book, um, thinking about potentiality and potentiality mm-hmm. as an orientation and a, a trajectory. And there I acknowledge my working class backgrounds in England where no none of my family had gone to university before. We were at very bad school and in it you know a not particularly good potential to make these careers and i felt that perhaps sometimes people's time spaces some where people exist and the trajectories they take the futures they make are limited by the circumstance of birth or the circumstance um you know of, of generations and such and i started to think about my own um life and the potentiality of me as a as a young person and perhaps how i did and didn't follow these uh, a given trajectories, assumed trajectories of somebody in my condition. And I think in the Vertiginous Life book, it does that at the beginning. I mean, not throughout to, to an extent, but in the beginning by saying, hey, you know, I think most of us experience these forms of temporal disorientation to different extents mm-hmm. and pinned to different events. Mm-hmm. And the duration isn't what matters. It can be three hours, it can be uh, three years, or it can be a decade, or it can be three moments. Um, And it can be different events, an economic crisis, a death, you know, medical conditions, earthquakes. But we all have these moments of detachment. We all have these moments of disorientation um, and, and what I call vertigo. And I think, you know, use an awful term, I think it was David Cameron, who said, we're all in this together. You know, but at the end of the day, we are all in this together. And if a, if a pandemic doesn't tell us that, then I think you know, something's seriously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I certainly agree. Um, I wanted to turn to a point you made um, in your answer to my previous question. So, you know, you mentioned how, um, you know, you pull from many different strands of theories and literatures. And, you know, even before you said that, like the book reads as a very interdisciplinary one. And the core problems of your book are very interdisciplinary themselves, like life, politics, temporality, and others. So, you know, for our listeners who might be working on their books or devising their projects, can you speak more to um, your approach to employing an interdisciplinary toolkit? Yeah, sure. I mean, interdisciplinary will mean different things to different people. So um, mm-hmm. I've had the fortune over the years, particularly in my, my earlier years after my, my doctorate, um, working interdisciplinarily. So first of all, what I would call soft interdisciplinarity at the Hellenic Observatory at the London School of Economics. I was working in a department that had human geographers, international relations people, uh, politics, and those type, what I call uh, soft interdisciplinarity, the things which are within the social sciences and humanities, which so often inherently come into an anthropological piece of work. And then at, at Durham on more what I call uh, hard interdisciplinarity, and that was on the, the um, project on photovoltaics and solar energy, where I, I remember sitting down with a, a physicist who was trying to develop a new composite to enhance the efficiency of uh, photovoltaic panels. And he went into a nan- nanophysics 101 about how, you know, 
cadmium reacts with silicon at the nano level or whatever it was um, at the atomic <laughs> level. And I, I try to sit through that and think, yeah, so this is why you want to put in new types of panels in Greece rather than the old types of panels, the silicon panels in Greece. But how does that then relate to the engineering side of things? And how does that relate to the geoscience side of things? Um, so that sort of more hard dis- interdisciplinarity has been part of my work in the past as well. But I think, you know, if we stay true to our ethnography and we stay true to the people that we work with, um, their lives can't be explained through one discipline. They interact with Mm -hmm. so many different parts of the world, so many different parts of life, where I don't know if anthropology always has uh, the brilliant toolkit to deal with that. Ethnography, you know, participant <laughs> observation can deal with a lot of that. Sometimes I think um, even philosophy, which is seen as being a bit detached and abstract, uh, deals very, very well with what people are trying to tell you. So you know, in previous mm-hmm. work, uh, I've used Michel Serre, um, who talks about his own livelihood, his own, sorry, his own life during the Second World War. And he was saying, I can't look at pictures that have got, that have been produced during the Second World War because they absolutely ooze affect because they pain me so much. I can't even look at my own childhood photographs. I still feel hungry with the same famine of the war. And I'm thinking, well, this is exactly what I'm being told by, by somebody in, in Trickler who are saying, I'm fearing the famine again. I cannot look at my childhood photographs and such. So you can match them up and let this sort of ethnographically led interdisciplinarity come out and then use someone like Sarah to build up the layers of theoretical analysis on it. Um, otherwise, I think that there's so much interdisciplinarity inherently in anthropology. Many of the books that we take as now contemporary anthropological studies are influenced by other disciplines, uh, even if you look through the citations, the reference lists of a lot of these books, the types of um, genealogies of the theories that people are using, as my, I'm, to be honest with you, particularly in what I see kept coming out of the US at the moment, uh, this isn't Boazian or, or Malinovskian um, <laughs> anthropology by, by any means. And that's great and that's good, but I think that's something we should embrace and not and not shy away from. And that's certainly what I try to get my my students to do. So, you know, interdisciplinarity, there's two ways of doing it, isn't there? You can set up an interdisciplinary project and you can say, okay, I'm going to look at this thing like um, why, uh, what impact has the turn to renewable energy had on the agricultural plains of Thessaly? And for that, I need the insight of an engineer. Uh, Are the grids compatible with the idea of transporting to uh, Northern Europe energy? Uh, I need an economist. I need a geopolitical specialist about, you know, pipelines and, and transit cables going through Turkey and through through Macedonia, which is massive geopolitical questions. Um, I, I need all these different types. I need the physicist to explain to, to me how these things are working. That would be sort of designed from the outset as an interdisciplinary project. Or, and I think the vertiginous life one comes, if, if you say it comes across as interdisciplinary, which wasn't necessarily what I, what I mean with this project. Um, it is simply because that's where the ethnography, the stories, the core anthropological material that I've collected have led me. And I think that they are people's lives are explained better through engaging with um, ideas coming from different disciplines, particularly in this case, literature, uh, popular literature and novels, which I've never done before. Um, and I, I, I don't know how that works in the Vindigenous Lives book. I, I know I, I'm not the judge of that, but it was certainly a plunge into the unknown for me to be dealing with literature, novels, popular culture, films, television programs as such, which also seem to explain the Vindigenous in certain ways. Mm, yeah, I love your emphasis and reminding us to follow up with the ethnography but I also love how plunging into the unknown has also been like sort of a methodology for you it Mm. seems (laughs) yeah that's fascinating Um, and I want to turn back again (laughs) to something that came up in our conversation so uh, I'm curious about whether you see scaling up as a methodological framework because we've discussed a little bit about how you know you put these layers of individual individual narratives to come up with a broader political analysis so um yeah i'm curious if scaling up was a methodological orientation for you and if so what did it do for you and the book yes uh i certainly enjoy trying to scale and I say trying to because I don't always know if I'm successful in doing that but I think that's one thing that anthropology 
anthropologists must try to do uh, to engage with the issue of scale. So we have scales operating on different level here. We have the individual idea of uh, vertigo. So like Mary, who's feeling that she's losing, every time she looks in the mirror, she's losing more of her former self. She doesn't recognize who she is. Um, she, in a very sort of, in, in the terms of Sartre, is she's losing her, her essence uh, of existence. Mm. Um, and every time she passes the house that she um, had to sell, um, she feels nauseous. She veers, nearly crashes the car. On a, So that's a very sort of individual level of, of, of feeling sick with the condition. Um, and then trying to discuss how that's almost like an atmosphere or a cloud that sweeps across a nation, um, let alone a village or a town, a nation like Greece, where there is this overlapping of narratives, parallel stories, feelings, affects of captivity, of disassociation with former selves, of sickness. Um, and that is, that's a scaling from the individual to, to the collective, which I like to try to do. And I, I do that through different um, disciplinary approaches, but also through different engagements. So like I say, engaging with trying to explain that through things like technology, interactions with photovoltaics or um, or energy infrastructure, for example. Um, that's certainly one form of, of scaling between narrative and collective. Um, I also think the anthropologists should deal with scale now in looking at more problems. Um, I mean, we're living in, in, living in, a, in a world of, of globalization, of abstract international markets and such like. Uh, every one of these lives, every individual life that we have is part of a network which goes far beyond the individual or the local community, whether it's through um, you know, the internet, whether it's through movement, global movement, and there's quite a lot of movement in the book as well, movement around Europe and around Greece, uh, or indeed if it's in terms of scaling up to encounter more problems of, of a planetary level. And I think that's another scaling that anthropology can do, is how can we engage with planetary problems on a global scale of things like climate change, of uh, sustainability, of um, economics, or like this global economic crash, whilst staying true to uh, our sort of core discipline and looking at the small scale as well. What can the small scale provide for the for the bigger scale and how can these things interlink? And I think on interdisciplinary projects, that's also where anthropology, at least in the UK, often just tends to be tagged on to the end. So you might have something dealing with climate change or global economic crisis. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, oh, we better get an anthropologist on here because we need some interviews, we need some participant observation. And I think that's a really poor way of doing it as an afterthought. And I think building in scale uh, into our projects and into our, our writing um, is an important is important for the future of the discipline more than anything else. Of how can we connect what makes anthropology special and unique to not necessarily solving but contributing to understandings of problems of a global scale. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Um, before we end, I want to ask, what is next for you? What are some new projects, questions, even courses that you're working on right now? Yeah, so I'm working on a few things. First of all, very much like I did with the Anthropology of the Future book when it was out, um, I thought I was a bit disappointed with how I had engaged with this idea of time of crisis as a time space. And that was the starting point for the Vertiginous Lives book. I was thinking, how can I actually populate this category? How can I get more detail and definition to this category, which wasn't there in the previous book? So I did that with Vertiginous Lives. And funnily enough, now I look at the Vertiginous Lives book and have sort of talked about it and presented it a few places. And people have taken the idea of the vertiginous or a vertigo and run with it in different trajectories, some of them very critical, mm -hmm. but always in an engaging manner. And it's made me think actually, what I've got is one form of vertigo, it's my vertigo, it's, it's, it's what I've got there on the page, but there's so much more potential to this um, orientation, if you like, of vertigo. How can it be talked of in terms of structure? How can it be talked of in terms of aesthetic, um, etc.? So a couple more writing projects I have is trying to explore with other colleagues um, all, over, all over the globe about what we can do with the concept of uh, 
vertiginity of people living in vertigo. So I've got a couple of writing projects uh, continuing to try to take vertigo in different directions uh, and see where it goes. At the same time, I'm also wary of this not becoming a catch-all term. It's it's not there to describe <laughs> everything. It's got to be ham- honed down and hammered down somehow. But how I do it might be very different how you do it and how our colleagues do it. So I hope that it will make maybe thinking too big here, but I hope that it's a, some form of contribution um, to some people in the discipline to help interpret and think through their own material. So that's one thing. Moving away from vertigo, but staying on the theme of scale, um, for many years, since 15 years, I suppose, one of my theoretical muses has been Michel Serre, the French philosopher of science, um, mainly because I use him as an as-if informant. So much of my world, such much of the world of the people who I work with, resonate with Sayre's views uh, of the of his life and of his worlds. And Sayre is a very complicated author to deal in because he, he jumps around between all these different disciplines, from mathematics and physics to literature to anthropology. Um, and it's not all tidy at all. It's very difficult to get through. But I was talking um, with a colleague of mine in Copenhagen, Andreas Bandak, about how Sayre is there in sound bites for anthropologists. He's there in footnotes, uh, keywords like parasite. But there's not that much anthropologist, anthropology or anthropologists who engage in great detail with Sayre. And we think that that was quite, um, that's a missed opportunity, if you like. So Andreas Bandak and I now have a, a book which is uh, contracted with, with Duke um, and the draft papers and chapters should be coming in for that in January. And that's uh, Anthropological Engagements with Michel Serre. The book's called Porous Becomings at the moment. So that's a big writing project uh, and indeed interdisciplinary and to do with scale uh, as well. And I'm also still working on a manuscript on the renewable energy work that I've done over the last uh, decade, um, which has transformed into what you could call, I suppose, a time of sustainability, an epochal uh, version of what it is to be sustainable. So I'm trying to wrap wrap up that line of research as well. So those are writing projects. Uh, In terms of of students and things, I continue to talk uh, to teach anthropology of connections. I think how anthropology connects to other disciplines and connects also to real world problems is uh, very important. So all my teaching has been down that sort of idea of connections, which funnily enough Mm. is also connections, conversations, uh, the themes which come out in the sale book as well. Mm. Well, I'm jealous of those students <laughs> and we'll be looking forward to these new books and hopefully we'll have you on the podcast again. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Knight, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Likewise. I am Aliza Arjan. This discussion of vertiginous life, an anthropology of time and the unforeseen, published by Berkham Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.